Okay. We're ready to go. We are going to start our new podcast as we're walking our way through Genesis. Now, I want to just uh, say at the very beginning, please understand that this is not a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Genesis. This is really more of an outline, kind of a skeleton for you to be able to get a hold of, to kind of know what the book of Genesis contains. It divides into two parts. Right now, we're studying in the first part of Genesis 1, chapter 1 through chapter 11, and it really centers on four great events. Now, chapter 12 through 25 will center on four great people, but we will get to that in the next few podcasts. But the four great events, we've already looked at the first one was creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we just did a quick overview of what chapter 1 was about and really focused in on chapter 2 on our last podcast that talked about the four divine executive orders that God set up for his creation, for society to function. He talked about the first Sabbath, the first home, the first covenant, and the first marriage. And if we, as his creation, would adhere to his orders, then we would be able to experience the blessings that he has. So we're going to move to the second event tonight, and that's the fall of mankind. We're going to try to look through the chapters of Genesis 3 through 5 in a very concise way, uh, but not in a very deep way. I would challenge you, if you are enjoying this, to get in uh, to the book of uh, Genesis and find other material to go into it deeper. But this is about the fall of man. And temptation is a very key ingredient of why Adam and Eve uh, ever sinned against God. And temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Like it's good to pass a test if you're in school, but it's bad to pass that test by doing it by cheating. It's always good to pay your bills, but it's bad if you steal the money for the payments of those bills. And basically what Satan told Eve is that he could give her something that she really wanted, something that she probably needed, and she could have it now and enjoy it. And best of all, he promised her that there wouldn't be any painful consequences, really just deliberately lying about what God had told them. And God has given us a conscience to be able to understand the difference between good and bad. And that conscience accuses us when we do wrong, and it approves us when we do something right. Matter of fact, a Native American Christian compared conscience to an arrowhead. He wrote, if I do wrong, the arrowhead turns and hurts me until I make it right. But if I keep doing wrong, the arrowhead keeps turning and eventually wears down the point so it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's what the Bible calls in 1 Timothy chapter 4, a seared conscience, or even what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 even says, is an evil conscience that no longer functions properly the way God designed it. Now, once Adam and Eve had disobeyed God's word, shame set in on them, and they tried to hide from God. And that shame made it impossible for them to be able to enjoy the beautiful garden that God had created for them. In fact, the very trees that they tended, the very trees that produced their food, were now the very things that they tried to hide from God. That was not God's intended purpose for those trees. You see, nature is a window through which we as his creatures can see God. But Adam and Eve made nature a locked door to keep God out after they sinned. But we know the rest of the story. We got to insert this right here, that one day the Savior would come and he would die on a tree so sinners would come back to God and be restored in the right relationship to him. And when God searched for and approached Adam and Eve, we must remember he wasn't like a cruel master talking to disobedient slaves. 
and he wasn't like an angry judge that was trying to uh, talk to convicted criminals. No, God was like a brokenhearted father speaking in love to his wayward children. God's seeking Adam after his sin was really an act of grace because even as he exiled them from the garden and from his presence, he continued to work for them. Now, he could have at that moment delivered the final judgment and justly destroyed them, but he didn't do that. But he did pronounce penalties upon Adam and upon Eve and the serpent. And those penalties really, in a way, demonstrated God's love for them, but God's love for sinners in no way eliminates his holy hatred of sin. God's word to the serpent, Satan, in chapter 3, verse 15, are often called proto-evangelium, or it's the first gospel, because it's the first announcement of a coming redeemer found in the Bible. And those words to Satan that God spoke was that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. This was a declaration of war that God had pronounced. And it was between the offspring of the serpent, representing Satan's family, while the seed of woman is God's family. And of course, at the cross, Satan did bruise Christ's heel. But because of the resurrection, Christ crushed Satan's head and won the everlasting victory over Satan, not only for himself, but to all those who would come to him through faith. But notice God's continual care and provision for Adam and Eve, even after they had sinned against him before expelling them from the garden, God literally sacrificed an animal and used the skin to make suitable clothing for the new environment that he was placing them in. That meant that Adam and Eve had to give up their flimsy attempt at covering their shame and nakedness. Remember the fig leaves that they sewed together to try to cover their shame? They had to give those up, and they had to be willing to submit and to accept what God had provided for them to cover and protect them. It's much like what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even in our sin, just like Adam and Eve, God continued to care and provide for them. As we're born into this world as sinners, God still cares and provides for each one of us if we, through the eyes of faith, will see the Savior. And even though they turned their backs upon God, he was still there for them. But let's take a chapter about the faith, and let's not look at it back at what happened right after creation. Let's ask what about today. What about when you and I sin? What is our response? Do we attempt to hide from God? Do we try to cover our shame with our own little works? Do we do like Adam and Eve did when God confronted them by their sin? Do we blame others for our failures and sins rather than coming clean and admitting and confessing the truth? Do we even sense that when we sin, that God is still seeking us out to care and to provide for us? Well, in chapter four, as we move into that chapter now, it doesn't take long to see the devastating effects of sin. Now, chapter four centers around Cain, which was Adam and Eve's firstborn. And since God had made the promise that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, you had to believe that Adam and Eve had hoped that Cain would be that seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent and find victory for them. Unfortunately, Cain takes out his anger on someone other than Satan. And 
as you like it. Shakespeare wrote these words. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players. They all have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time may play many parts. Cain certainly did have a number of roles in his life. First of all, we see him as a brother. But unfortunately, when sin entered into the human race through Adam and Eve's sin, families became dysfunctional and fractured. And only the Lord can bring those families back together again. So Cain was a brother. Cain was also a worker. Now, work, unfortunately, has been misunderstood by a lot of people today. They believe work is a result of sin. Now, work is a part of God's creation mandate. It's not a punishment. But when sin did enter the world, it it made man's work difficult. Our toil became laborious. So Cain was a brother. He was a worker. But another part Cain played was that of a worshiper. Workers need to be worshipers or they'll become idolaters, focusing upon their gifts and not the givers. God rejected Cain's offering as he brought it before the Lord, not only because it was the wrong kind of offering, not what Adam and Eve had seen in the garden and what they had probably taught him, but even more importantly, God rejected Cain's offering because his heart was simply not right before God. And this led to another role of Cain, and that becoming a murderer. Cain murdered his own brother, not a stranger. And it's even statistics show today that the majority of murders happen by someone that is known as opposed to a stranger. And Cain murdered his brother Abel because Cain was envious and he had a hatred that built up in his heart for his brother, a jealousy. And notice that when Cain did this, it was after Cain had engaged in worship with God. And as he was there, and it was with the wrong offering, with the wrong attitude, God was warning. And he was promising Cain that if he get his heart right, that God would make it right. But once this diabolical deed was done, and Cain murdered his brother Abel, he tried to lie his way out of it. And because of this killing, Cain took upon another role in his life. And that's when he became a wanderer. It's been said that the vagabond has no home. A fugitive is running away from home. A stranger is away from home, but a pilgrim is headed home. Cain obviously made the wrong choice. Instead of being the pilgrim in this life, waiting for God to make the way back to home to heaven, back to the home that God had prepared for him, he became a stranger and a fugitive. I know some people have looked at the story of Cain killing Abel and then God almost like letting a murderer like Cain go free. We have to understand the nature of God. God in his mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. And in his grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. That's the very nature of God. He spared Cain's life, at this, but that's not the end of the story. Eventually, Cain did die. And then he faced judgment. Just as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, is appointed unto man to die once and then judgment. Cain eventually faced that judgment before God when his life here on earth ended. But before he died, Cain entered into one more part in life, and that was a builder. And since the ground would no longer yield its fruit to him, and since he was a farmer, but that was not going to work anymore, 
He decided he'd become a laborer and build upon the earth since he couldn't use in the earth the earth's soil anymore. And Cain built and lived in a society that grew, and it was rich in culture and industry with plenty of food. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that they had everything in this city, everything that is except God. His entire civilization that he and his descendants built would eventually be destroyed in the flood, which is going to be our next event that we'll look at in the next podcast. But the record of his life is left in the Bible simply to be a warning to anyone who wants to pretend to worship and play with sin and doesn't take temptation seriously. The way of Cain is not the narrow way that leads to life, as Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as chapter 4 comes to a close, with sin spreading quickly throughout the human race like a cancerous tumor, God is still working to fulfill his plans and fulfilling the promises that he had made to Adam and Eve. Because at the end of this chapter, you see where Seth is born. And Eve, as the mother, said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And Eve saying that offspring That's that hope still coming through, still shining, that the offspring of woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, chapter 5 is a very interesting chapter in the Bible. It's one of those chapters that a lot of people get stumped with. They trip over it. They get hung up because it's the first genealogy that's listed in the Bible, and it's the genealogy of Adam. And as you read through that list, there's a lot of difficult names, a lot of names that doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand. But what we do understand of this genealogy is very important because God had created Adam in the likeness of himself. But sin had entered in when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and sin marred the image that Adam was created in. But then as you start reading through this genealogy in chapter 5, you see where Adam fathered a son, Seth. But the Bible says Seth was born in the likeness of Adam after his image and not God's. As we continue to read that, we see that in chapter 5, the death bell rings loud and clear, and it says, and he died over and over and over again. But while all this is happening, if people looked up, they could find encouragement and inspiration in the midst of suffering and death. Because you see out of the 13 people that are listed here, four stand out because God did something really special through them just to encourage his people. Seth is that first one we want to look at, and he shows a new beginning from God. Sin and death reign today in this world, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we can reign in victory. That's what Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what's interesting is that baby boys have made a big difference between defeat and victory for God's people throughout the history of mankind. During the bondage of Egypt, when the nation of Israel was at their lowest, Moses was born, a baby boy. And when the lamp of God was growing dim, once the Israelites had entered into the promised land, Samuel, the prophet, was born. And when the kingdom of God was disintegrating under King Saul, God sent a son to a man named Jesse. And that boy that was born last in Jesse's home was named David, who became probably the most famous king of the nation of Israel. But it's at this very low point in man's history, in chapter 5 of Genesis, that by the grace of God, 
one little boy is going to continue that messianic line, the offspring of woman who would crush the head of humanity's enemy, Satan, the author of sin and death. And this should encourage us because as we see our world turning more and more away from God and turning to sin and rebellion, we can trust that he is still sovereign and he is going to accomplish and fulfill his purposes and his plans for our life. He sent us that little boy, Seth. Now the second person's a few verses down and his name is Enosh. And we see Enosh calling upon God. And this is when people began to worship God, to proclaim his name and to pray. The descendants of Seth met together in the name of the Lord, while the other offspring of mankind, the Cainites, those who were descended from Cain, they were boasting of their strength and of their valor and of their accomplishments. And while the world is going its way, God has always kept a remnant uh, alive and well in this world. Elijah at one time was so discouraged and he felt like he was the only one who would remain faithful. And God even spoke to him and said, Elijah, there's not only you, but there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. And only God knew for sure who those men were. And Isaiah prophesied that after the 70 years of being in exile in Babylon, that one day a remnant would return, but it would be a small number of people. Jesus even taught us in the Gospels that if two or three agree together, conflict can be resolved among people in the church. And at Pentecost, in the whole town of Jerusalem, not only were the people who lived in Jerusalem, but all the people who had come from all over the world to worship at, at uh, Passover and stayed through first fruits and even up to Pentecost, there were only 120 people in the upper room waiting for God to move. And then one other person that was significant, that just one person, was the Apostle Paul. But with the power of the Holy Spirit living in him, he literally set off from Jerusalem and, and moved from where the gospel was created there as the Holy Spirit came upon them, and he literally evangelized the entire Roman Empire. We must understand that God doesn't need a majority to rule. He, he's not a democracy like what we live in here in the United States of America. He does not need that majority to rule. He always looks for a remnant, the few, that will pray, that will trust, and will apply God's word to their life to get the work done. And Enish was one, Seth's son, that began that. And then we move a little further down, and we see another man named Enoch, and he wasn't just calling upon God. Enoch was walking with God. And the sobering phrase, as I said earlier, and he died, is used over and over again, except with Enoch. Enoch is the only one of two men who never died on this earth. Elijah, the prophet, was taken up in the whirlwind and never died. But in Hebrews, in chapter 11, that chapter that's talking about the men and the women of faith, it talks about, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And now before he was taken, he was, commanded, uh, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those 
who diligently seek him. And during Enoch's life, vice and violence were rampant, and only a remnant of people were believing God. And according to Jude, Enoch began preaching and telling people about a coming judgment. He wasn't just predicting about the flood of Noah that we'll see in the next few chapters of Genesis, but he was also even forecasting about the return of Jesus Christ that would come at the end of the world when Jesus Christ would return with all the saints. So no matter how dark the day or how bad the news, we have the promise of our Lord's return to encourage us and to motivate us to walk with God just like Enoch did. And then the last person in chapter five we wanna look at is the very last person named, and that's Noah, a name that's very familiar to us. And Noah, we see rest and comfort from God. Noah walked with God and he was used to save the human race, ensuring the continuance of the promised Messiah. Now the name Noah literally means comfort. And his father, Lamech, his prayer was that somehow his son would bring rest to God's weary people. Centuries later, God's Son, Jesus Christ, would say these wonderful words that are recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Jesus said this to the people, Come unto me, all you who are labored and heavy laden. And he said, I will give you rest. Just as Noah was to provide rest for God's weary people, Jesus came to provide spiritual rest for us. Now, Satan was in no way going to stand by idly and do nothing. He attacked. And what was his plan? His plan was to get the godly line of Seth, the seed of woman, to compromise. And compromise is one of the most successful strategies that Satan uses even today. If he can delude God's people into abandoning their privileged position, and that being separated from sin and having communion with God, then he can corrupt them and lead them into sin and death. Satan tried to get Seth's godly line to mix with the ungodly line of Cain to get them to abandon their devotion to the Lord. That's the same temptation we face today. James chapter 4 tells us about temptation begins by becoming friendly with the world. And then 1 John chapter 2 talks about how we begin to look and desire the things of the world and we fall in love with the world even though the world is passing away. And then Romans chapter 2, when we fall in love, then we begin to conform. We begin to be pressed into the mold of what the world wants us to be rather than being separated from the world and being different from the world and being set apart for God's holy use. Lot is a perfect example of how this happens in our lives. First, he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he moved outside and lived around the edges of that evil places of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says that he moved into the towns and he dwelt with them. And he lost all of his influence with the world and even led his family into judgment. And again, as we've looked now through Genesis 4 and 5 and, and talked about what was going on with Cain and Abel and with Seth, the question is, if you were examining your own life, who do you more closely resemble? Does your life resemble Lot, who compromises with the world and loves the world and conforms the world? Or would people say, when they look at you, there's an Enoch. There's a man who's walking with God and not compromising with the world. Ladies and gentlemen, God is calling all of us out to come and to follow him. And the question is, will you obey? Will you dare to be different for his glory? 
Sin has marred the image that we're creating in. But God is reconciling us back to himself. And when we get reunited with him in eternity, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. The challenge is to live our life growing closer to that image as we live every day on this world so that his light can shine through us. So that's the second of the great, four great events in Genesis 1 through 11. We saw creation, now we've seen the fall of man. Our next podcast will look at the flood of Noah. But if this podcast has challenged you in any way or if you have questions that you would like to ask, please uh, email those to us. You can do that at Mike at Risen, and Risen is spelled R-I-Z-E-N dot church, and I'll be glad to respond to you. Thank you, and may you have a blessed day.